0: Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being, you know, shot.
1: Anytime he gets upset, anytime he gets threatened, anytime he gets scared, he begins yelling, he begins often cursing.
0: What is this, right prior to his being shot?
1: Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who hanging with President Xi in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, walks back 100% of his campaign rhetoric about China raping the United States on trade.
0: China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest...
1: I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, and that was Donald Trump in a less ornate setting in Fort Wayne, Indiana, back on May 2nd, 2016. You know, I watch these foreign trips with a zoom lens based on my experiences, having to put them together for President Clinton. And this week, during his marathon five-nation, 12-day swing through Asia, here's how the president pivoted when the audience isn't packed with Hoosiers from Carrier wearing Make America Great Again hats.
0: I don't blame China. (laughs) After all... Who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit.
1: There you go. Praising the Chinese for having their way with us. In fact, putting the blame on his predecessors, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, one presumes, for decades of mismanagement of the bilateral relationship with China. The language of sexual assault as applied to politics this week It went way beyond metaphor. The Washington Post headlined a story that Roy Moore, the Alabama GOP's Senate nominee, initiated a sexual encounter with a 14-year-old when he was 32. That came on Thursday, on top of disturbing new reporting in the cases of Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, and the airing in the New York Times of long-standing rumors about the comic Louis C.K. What to make of the behavior of Roy Moore a man vying for one of the 100 coveted seats in the upper house of the U.S. Congress. If you're Steve Bannon, you lay the blame at the hands of the Post reporters who broke the story, ignoring the substance of the charge and drawing a parallel to the Access Hollywood tape. But it's interesting. The Bezos, Amazon, Washington Post that dropped that dime on Donald Trump is the same Bezos, Amazon, Washington Post that dropped the dime this afternoon on Judge Roy Moore. Now, is that a coincidence? What's happened to our civility? Two Republicans, the last Republicans, had carved out a view of Trump well before the Access Hollywood tape. One called him a blowhard. The other saw the divisiveness Trump was sowing and lamented what it meant for his party. They were both former presidents of the United States. A father and a son, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. Their relationship and their place on the world stage is chronicled in a new book by presidential historian Mark Updegrove, former director of the LBJ Presidential Library and now the inaugural CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum. From New England to Texas, from the oil fields of Midland to the South Lawn of the White House, the connection between generations, the last Republicans. After the break. Mark Updegrove has a unique perspective on the presidency. The longtime director of the LBJ Presidential Library and now the inaugural CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum, he's made a career of studying the American chief executive from Lyndon Johnson to now the 41st and 43rd occupants of the White House. From an exclusive conversation with both men comes The Last Republicans, the book's title taken from a comment – I fear I will be the last Republican president that Bush 43 made to Updegrove last year. With the political careers of mainstream Republicans like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake dissolving before our eyes, Bush's prophecy appears to be in full flower. Mark Updegrove, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks, Josh. There's a mythology or lore that has sprung up about 41 and 43, H.W. Bush and W. Bush somewhat sprung from these quotations that we have from George W., I look to a higher father and other things, that there was a distance or a competition or a prodigal son nature between son and father. But because of that closeness in age and the spryness of the 41st president once his son was in in the White House, George H.W. Bush really was, or at least one of the major points of your book is that he was a much more forceful presence in his son's life and presidency than maybe we've understood to this point.
0: Yeah, I think there was an expedient narrative uh, that became accepted during the course of 43's presidency, which is that he was the prodigal son. Uh, As he told me in our first meeting about this book, I was never the prodigal because I never left my family. And though he lived apart from his family for many years, I think what he says is true. Uh, he, He loves his family, always has, And I think while he emulated his father and tried, sometimes in vain, to follow in his footsteps, uh, there was never a rivalry there. I think that, as he said to me, there was a certain sort of expectation that he had tacitly, but it was not imposed on him by his parents. His parents really let him find his own way. And uh, he wandered off the trail every now and again. But ultimately he found his way back, and partly that was because his father gave him so much leeway and and also um, had great faith that his son would ultimately make the right decisions in his life. so in looking at the again the the extraordinary nature of of this situation, just these two men who became president within eight years of each other it it was just a story that needed to be told through the eyes of the principals themselves, and I was able to convince. Uh, both George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, uh, that that was the case. And they opened up to me about that relationship.
1: Was it a hard uh, hill to climb to get them both to open up, to, to get them to cooperate with
0: you? You know, as you know, Josh, they were they are famously circumspect. Uh, these are not people who wallow on the couch. And as as George W. Bush said, you know, they, they're they not ones to psychobabble. But there is something that uh, about George W. Bush's life that suggests that he was uh, trying in some ways to prove himself to his father and, and really very clearly followed his father's footsteps very carefully. You talked about that, that quote uh, that, that he appealed to a higher father. And in some ways, that's true. As he explained to me uh, before his spiritual awakening in 1986, which is a story itself, when he when he uh, uh, gave up alcohol and embraced religion,
1: Billy Graham visiting Walker's Point is that right? That's
0: exactly right. Yeah, uh, which is in, again in itself is a, it could be a great novel, um, just the the interaction between those two men. But prior to that point, the greatest influence in in his life was his father, and after that point, the greatest influence in his life he would say was Jesus Christ. So in some ways, what he was saying. When he's told Bob Woodward, uh, I appeal to a higher father, was true.
1: You know, Mark Updegrove, there might have been a different President 45. Your book is about President 41 and 43. There was great hope among 41 and to a certain extent with his brother 43 that Florida Governor Jeb Bush would become the 45th president of the United States. Let's go back to June 5th, June 15th, 2015, and remember what it was like at uh, Florida State University. So here's what it comes down to. Our country's on a very bad course. And the question is, what are we going to do about
0: it? The question for me, the question for me is, what am I going to do about it? And I've decided I'm a candidate for president of the United States of America.
1: Mark Updegrove, that was probably the high watermark of Governor Bush's presidential campaign. Set that up. What were the dynamics within the family leading up to that moment?
0: There was great expectation. I I think great hope that Jeb would throw his hat in the ring. Both uh, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush felt he was the the best candidate. There's a little bias there, I'm sure. But but let's face it. uh, Jeb Bush had a reliably conservative record. Uh, He had a good reputation in the Republican Party he was a policy wonk with with great solutions had a uh, had a marvelous record on uh in Florida on which he could run so he was the the natural in so many respects and and in addition to that had the bush machine behind him which had obviously worked for his father and his brother but as he explained to me josh uh in 2015 he and i got together right before he threw his hat in the ring and he he talked about the political landscape, the, the, the mindset in, in America at that point. And he said that politics is a lens on our culture. And if you look at our culture right now, it's steeped in crap. <laughs> he said it's, it's the Kardashians. And in, in, in that observation, he essentially, essentially portended his own demise as a candidate because this, this is a, a man who was upended by a reality TV star at the end of the day. So uh, it was an extraordinarily prescient and revealing comment. The very
1: next day after Governor Bush makes his announcement on June 15th, June 16th in New York City comes down the escalator at Trump Tower, Donald J. Trump, which sort of completely upends this race that the Bush dynasty and the Bush team thought could be theirs in a field of also-rans. The summer continues, and Donald Trump, in his way of... Labeling, libeling, and branding his opponents figures out probably the Achilles heel of Governor Bush, goes on the Jimmy Kimmel show, among other places, and brings his new nickname for the governor out for a spin. Let's
0: hear that. He was supposed to be, because of the name, he, you know, everyone thought he was the odds on favorite. And I defined him. I gave him this, this term, low energy. I said, he's a low energy individual. We do not need in this country low energy. Do you agree with that? We need high energy. We need a guy like We him. do need high energy.
1: Mark, we as you're talking people. with members of the Bush family and the Bush inner circle last year during the campaign, and you're sort of watching this labeling of the Bush family and Governor Bush in particular as low energy, how are people reacting to Donald Trump the candidate?
0: You know, bullies have a way of doing that. Bullies have a way of branding you and in a way that makes you very self-conscious and and in a way that rings true, too. But what George W. Bush told me was that when Donald Trump threw his hat in the ring, uh, he thought, interesting, won't last. But he also conceded that he wasn't on the campaign trail at the time. And when you're out on the trail, he said, you you get an instinctive sense of things. And George W. Bush has a, has a very uh, incisive political mind. In fact, his father recognized that in him very early. He has, a, he has an instinctive sense of things. So he didn't, really didn't read the electorate and their, their anger. And one of the things he said to me, Josh, is that, you know, as a candidate in, in the political environment of 2016, you could either exploit the anger or offer solutions. He said, my man, meaning Jeb, offered solutions but what the american people gravitated to was the anger that donald trump so effectively fomented during the course of his campaign
1: one of the one of my favorite parts of your book is this sort of intervening years between 92 and 2000 when bush uh, senior is back in texas and in 2000 and 2001 finally george w bush takes office he embarks on one agenda for the first nine months of his presidency. Everything changes on 9-11, and we're reminded of that by the indelible speech that he made at Ground Zero.
0: For the workers who work here, for the families who mourn, this nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can
1: hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... Can Mark Updegrove, bring us through sort of the first nine months of the Bush presidency as it relates to the relationship between father and son and how that relationship changed after 9-11 and what the former president did with his son to help advise him through those first years
0: in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course. The, right before that, 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 those remarks that you heard at Ground Zero where jo- George W. Bush picks up that bullhorn and rallies – the first responders down in Lower Manhattan. He was in in Washington, D.C. at the National Cathedral and made perhaps the most stirring address in his public life uh, when he talks about the, the terrorist strikes. And he goes back to his pew and his parents asked to break protocol. Um, if they had adhered to protocol, it would have been the Clintons sitting next to George W. and Laura Bush in that church because the, uh, the hierarchy among presidents, the, the, uh, the most senior members of the former presidents are those who have been most recently in office. The, the elder Bushes asked the, the Clintons if they would be willing to break protocol so that they can sit next to the president and first lady. The, the Clintons obviously willingly do so. And so after that speech at the National Cathedral, when George W. Bush makes a, this stirring address, the elder Bush reaches over and clasps his son's hands. And it is the most indelible moment that both of them remember of each other during the course of George W. Bush's presidency. And in many ways, in my view, it's where George W. Bush comes completely into his own. His father said to me, I I never would have been able to make it through that address myself without tearing up, without getting too emotional. And he worried about his son, getting too emotional during that speech. And he comes through uh, uh, making this just incredible stirring address. And then you see the the elder Bush reach out. And it's a, it's a very, very touching moment.
1: I want to use the next few minutes, Mark, to sort of pivot back to your expertise on Lyndon Johnson, because, you know, this week we look at the election results in Virginia and New Jersey, the defeat of Ed Gillespie by Ralph Northam, and also think about the comments over the last few weeks of Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, and John McCain about President Trump and what that might portend for the 2018 midterms. There was this moment, of course, in 1968 when Lyndon Johnson is reading the tea leaves or thinking about needing to prosecute the war in Vietnam and his political prospects in the sixty eight election, and we were reminded of that famous TV address. I wanna sort of fast forward a little bit to think about what this current president might face if the election goes sour in the midterms.
0: I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties Other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president.
1: Mark, what led Johnson to go on TV that night with that message, and what would be the circumstances by which President Trump? might look at his prospects in 2020 and decide to stand down?
0: Uh, Let me, I'll answer your first question first about Lyndon Johnson. There are a lot of misconceptions about that speech. Uh, As you said, it was delivered on March 31st, 1968. And to the shock of the nation, as you heard, Lyndon Johnson opted not to seek his party's nomination for the presidency. For a a man who had spent his whole adult life toward the uh, acquisition and exercise of power, it was incredibly surprising to Americans that he would not Seek to uh, to to renew that power, but uh, the misconception is that Johnson thought he would lose. Uh, On the contrary, Johnson did not think he would lose, and I don't think he would have lost either. I think he would have certainly gotten the the nomination of his party. Uh, Another misconception is that Eugene McCarthy was was uh, a major threat to Lyndon Johnson. McCarthy had won forty percent of the ballot in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, and Johnson had won 46%. So it was a great surprise that Eugene McCarthy, this largely unknown candidate, uh, got 40% of the vote simply by having an anti-Vietnam War uh, stance. But the fact is that Lyndon Johnson's name was not on that ballot in New Hampshire. It had to be written in. Uh, So, uh, and McCarthy's name was on the ballot, and still Lyndon Johnson won. I think he would have won the, the the presidency that year, Richard Nixon, of course, we know won and had pretty much the same Vietnam War policy that Johnson had. But uh, the, Johnson didn't want to run for two reasons. One is that he had a bad heart. His father and grandfather had died just into their 60s. He had had a heart condition that was nearly fatal. Uh, uh, he had a heart attack in, when he was 47 years old and nearly died and felt his heart, every day this this heavy heart that he had and didn't want to put the American people through a health crisis. That was one reason. The other reason was that he wanted to get Ho Chi Minh to the peace table. And he thought that overture of not running would get Ho Chi Minh to agree to talk peace. In fact, uh, the overture worked, but the, the the peace talks never came to fruition throughout the balance of Johnson's presidency, partly because Nixon helped to sabotage them in the fall of 1968, so uh, that's what happened in, in with Lyndon Johnson. And answer to your question about Trump, Josh. I, I think that um, there is a a, a a battle afoot currently for the soul of the Republican Party. You've seen the establishment Republicanism, uh, Republicans rather in in Jeff Flake and others realize that there is really no clear path forward for them. So I think the the, the Republican Party has to figure out who it is at this stage of the game. Is it just what Donald Trump wants it to be? Uh, the, the capricious Donald Trump? Or is it something bound to greater principles and platforms? And so I, I don't know what, uh, we obviously don't know what's going to happen with Donald Trump. He is he is nothing if not unpredictable. But, but clearly, uh, Republicanism is very different than it was just a few years ago. The next generation of
1: the Republican Party could be embodied by the next generation of the Bush family, Mark. And if classic Republicanism may have died with the last Republicans, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, how do you square sort of the the family loyalty with the way that George P. Bush, the Texas land commissioner, the son of Governor Jeb Bush, and although there's not a lot of good video or sound of George P. Bush on the political stump in Texas— He did, at various points, endorse Donald Trump once Governor Bush, Jeb Bush, dropped out of the race. And so how do you square, in terms of family loyalty, toward President Bush 41, President Bush 43, and his father, Governor Bush, with this expediency that George P. Bush used when he was chairing the Victory Fund in Texas? You speak in the book about... President Bush 41 writing to his kids at various occasions that they need to chart their own course. Was this a case of George P. Bush, for political reasons, charting his own course?
0: Very much consistent, Josh, for the reasons that you suggested. The, the, the Bush patriarch, Bush 41, told his sons, as you said, chart your own course. No one will ever question your loyalty in the family. And what it, by that, he's saying, look, we know you love us. So if you need to take uh, attacked that that seems like you are you, you're you're taking a different view than i did or you're questioning some of my policies go for it go for it i know you love me the bushes at the end of the day are political pragmatists uh, they've often done what they have to do in order to acquire power but there is a, there is a a bush family ethos an essence that transcends all that and i think that 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 there is this tacit Um, understanding that in the Bush family, you can chart your own course. But at the end of the day, you are a Bush if you exemplify the values that that family stands for. And I think that's love and loyalty, humility, and putting service above self.
1: The book is The Last Republicans, the author, Mark Updegrove, Mark is the former director of the LBJ Presidential Library and now the inaugural CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum. Great book, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us on
0: Trumpcast. Thanks for having me, Josh. And
1: that's our show for today. Hey, are you following us on Twitter? It is the best place to keep up with everything going on with the show. We're on there at Real RealTrumpCast, and you can find me at Polyoptics. Also, TrumpCast has a live show this Tuesday in San Francisco. Join Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, Jamel Bowie, and other special guests at the Norse Theater at 7.30 p.m. this Tuesday. Tickets still available at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. Thanks, as always, for listening to Trumpcast.